So as we all well aware, today is the full moon, uh, a full moon day. Mm. This one we're calling Vesaka Puja. Remember these uh, these names. Vesaka refer to the old Indian constellations. So in the lunar calendar, they follow the lunar calendar. So then you could see very obviously the moon is full, the moon is dark, okay, and then the seasons. So you get lunar calendar, you get thirteen lunar months. Yeah. And one of those months is called Vesaka. And now, of course, we follow the solar calendar, which makes it difficult because the solar calendar is, is about 11 days longer than the lunar calendar. This means that <laughs> the months don't exactly line up. So it's often kind of conventionally said, you know, the Buddha's enlightenment in months of May. Well, Yes and no, it depends. <laughs> Sometimes it is. Because the Buddha was born in the month of, well, in the Vesaka, and sometimes that shifts around. And another anomaly, of course, is that because of this discrepancy between the two calendars, one solar being longer, then in our, parley, in our reckoning of our procedures and seasons, we have to keep a adjusting it to try and fit it otherwise it goes completely out so every now and then gradually over the over periods of years a few years the lunar calendar creeps back and back and back so every now and then they shove an extra month in to push it up again (laughs) so this is one of those years when they added another month to kind of fill in this this gap that keeps appearing so now, this time we're doing it in, in June, the Vesaka. This is my third. <laughs> so I had one in May, because it was a Sri Lankan temple I was staying in, and they celebrated May 4th. Yeah. And now we had one the other week, which was a kind of a purely conventional one, because help to have one on Sunday, which is a nice day when people can gather. And... Uh, and now we're having another one on what's the Thai version of the Vesaka, which is June 3rd. Now these, you see how real is time? <laughs> how real are calendars? You know, how real what you make of it, isn't it? You know, an occasion for commemorating the Buddha. It's perhaps every day, ideally, if you're really into it, into what it's about living it, feeling into it. Mm. Even when you talk about birth, enlightenment, death, actually, this figure, the Buddha, we don't really know that much, definitely. Because he, you have different versions of this person, and this Pali Sutta version, and you have the Mahayana, the Sanskrit Sutra versions, you know, various fables and legends that have accumulated over the centuries. So you get quite a collage of presentations, and we'll never really know because even even these quite early versions, the Pali Suttas, 
the Buddha himself, who appears in that, rarely speaks about his biography. He wasn't that interested. What he was interested in was in bringing forth Dhamma. So occasionally, just once or twice, he might refer to when I was younger, before I entered this quest. But he wasn't, he wasn't interested, really. Apart from to, to sense, I was an ordinary person. I was a you know, fairly well-to-do person, well-to-do family, and I'd renounced it all. Meaning, I had, you know, the meaning of that, the dumber meaning of this, is there was this very strong intention. A very strong intention. A person of great intention. Because uh, to renounce your privileged position wasn't just a matter of wealth, it's also your identity. Because in the Indian, that time, there's no, you know, you belong to a a system, a caste system, a clan system, a family system. You don't have a passport, a visa, a pin code, a bank account. (laughs) You have no other form of identity other than that which belongs to your caste, your clan, your family, your tribe. And he just... So he just basically dropped out of the cosmos uh, into the jungle, physically, psychologically, socially, an outcast. That's a powerful, powerful resolve. And in that resolve he wasn't alone. Others did it too. Through seeing... uh, the dangers, the uh, futility, the uh, lack of fruition that occurs in basically following the social trend, which is essentially moored to the experience of the senses. The world gets created through sense contact, which of course we all say, oh, this is the real thing. What we see what we hear, what we touch, what we taste, what we think about, that's the real thing. We all follow that. To a certain degree, we all agree upon it. We don't exactly agree on it. Like what we find beautiful, inspiring, we don't always agree on that. What we find attractive, we don't always agree on that. What we find tasty, we don't always agree on that. What we believe in, we don't always agree on that. Our nationalities, different. Our language, different. In fact, we don't agree on anything. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's the nature of the sense. It, it, seemingly, you're a kind of this... As long as you don't look too closely, it seems, because we all do get, we all agree, that we're impacted by sights, sounds, thoughts, touches and tastes. We all know that. We all know we feel things. We have pleasure, pain, and we will search for happiness. We all know that. <laughs> and the rest of it is just maybe so. You know, am I Greek? Am I, am I nationalist? Am I. don't know. Does it matter? You know? And so dropping all that, get down to it. We are impacted by sense contact. It gives rise to feeling, and feeling drives us. Yeah, pleasant feeling drives us, fear of painful feeling, 
And this is not just purely physical, it's also the emotional painful feeling of failure, rejection, loss, mm, malevolence. Mm. Yeah. Happens, we all know that. Yeah. And so in that, and we all know also, we have a sense we will die. We experience pain and we will die. We'll be helpless. We came in helpless, open, we will pass away helpless. And that's something that uh, some people prick their ears up and go, my goodness. <laughs> you know? And then this, is there a way out from this, this presentation of experience? And firm intention. Aspiration, motivation, desire, you could say, chanda. Mm. And so the bodhisattva, the Buddha-to-be goes, does this. He he has that, whatever else he is or who he is, he has that. And he struggles. He struggles a lot. And all the accounts and all the histories and his own accounts say he struggled a lot. And it was very difficult. Uh, physically difficult and psychologically difficult. There are numerous accounts, well, actually the three main accounts, as far as I can notice, but some of them mentioning would just be set with fear and dread in the jungle. The mind shivering with fear and dread. And he says, I just kept walking up and down. I didn't change my posture until I got past the fear and the dread. Yeah. Kind of, kind of very minimalist, but you can get the sense, yeah. You know, yeah. working with that, you're totally alone, hostile. The fear and dread came over. Yeah. I kept working with it, working through it. Somehow using the body, walking up and down using his firm intention, resolving not to, not to run, not to give up, not to fall apart, not to, to hold his heart steady through that. Mm. One of the more famous accounts is uh, the one of his extreme austerities. And uh, when you look at this, you can recognize, well, this, to this account occurred when he was in a debate, a rhetorical tussle, with a follower of the Jains. And the Jains, of course, were the supreme ascetics. They were the great, we can, you know, rip our hair out, we can live on one peanut, you know, (laughs) whatever, that's great, we'll starve ourselves to death, and that's the way out. So he was meeting one of these guys, and this guy said, look, I'm going to beat this Gautama up, you know, I'm going to give him a real trouncing, he won't be able to stand up against me. And so... Buddha said, oh yeah. <laughs> so he said, you guys do asceticism? Well, I'll tell you about mine. So he rolled out his presentation. Look, you know, skin of my belly touched my backbone. That's how little flesh there was. My ribs stuck out like the hoops of a barrel. My eyes were sunk in my head like looking down a dark well into the, these great cavities in my head. That's how ascetic I was. When I scratched my head, the hair fell out. That's how I said it, I was, you beat that kind of thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and eventually I even stopped breathing. 
how about that then? <laughs> so you can imagine kind of like in this great debate saying, you know, you, I got, I've got, this is my cred. This is my credentials. You know? Okay. And they say, but it was all useless. <laughs> so as a rhetorical flourish, it was all pointless, useless, this striving. So I, I try, you know, I, I went beyond your asceticism. I found it all useless. Uh, so, you know, they say, what did he find useful? He talks about his practice. Uh, not, not fighting with, with sensations, but actually removing his heart from unskillful activities, dwelling in something internal, breathing in, breathing out. Um, with the mind, with vitaka, placing, placing attention, vitaka, sometimes generally referred to as thinking, but none of this is just pure abstract thinking, there's only placing attention onto something so you, you get it. Uh-huh. And then vichara, sensing it, placing it, sensing it, what's this? Placing it, sensing it, and then opening to that and taking it in, absorbing it. You see this process of absorbing, which you call jhana, absorbing it, absorbing what happens when you linger on something skillful, taking it in. So this, this feels good and uh, blameless, not associated with sensory greed, Let's see where this goes. So, another account um, talks about him reviewing his process of his way his mind worked, and this sort of gain a great someone you see not just firm intention, but a great explorer, testing, 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 checking this out, checking that out, turning his mind over. You know? and so just notice. If my vitaka, if I place my attention on qualities associated with uh, sensuality, does it lead to my welfare? The welfare of others? No. Doesn't lead to my welfare. Doesn't lead to the welfare of others. Doesn't lead to an unbinding, a release called nibbana. Doesn't lead there. There's another one. When, I, when my attention, my mind settles on a, a mood or an intention or an attitude of uh, what's called vyapada, cruelty, harshness. Hmm. Not my wealth. Doesn't lead to my welfare. Not to the welfare of others. Doesn't release. Another one. Awihingsa. Brutality, abusiveness. No. Doesn't lead that way. Vihingsa. What if I removed it from that? Placed it on the outside of those dimensions, outside of those uh, intentions, outside of that, those attitudes. Mm. Well, this does. So skillfully shifting his attention round. 
skillful. And he says, having skillfully shifted my attention around in this way, this does lead to my welfare, does lead to release. Then I established mindfulness, unremitting mindfulness. On that. Bearing it in mind, lingering, staying with it, deeply absorbing into that. So we just kind of review that process. We see something about the process of very kind of an active inquiry. Yeah. He's not just sitting there kind of trying to calm down, but turning things over, an active inquiry. We call this Yoni So Manasikara, careful attention to the source of things. Where do things come from? Where do, where does my you know what's the source? What's the where's my where does my mind come from? Where's its basis? And you look pondering into that. Yoni So Manasikara to the source of one's mental fashioning, one's mental activities. This one's associated with the sense realm. Feeding on the senses. Hmm. If I follow that, it goes that way. This one's associated with some sort of harshness or cruelty. No. This one's associated with some sort of brutality. And then the opposites establish those. And this process of turning things over before mindfulness is fully established. I think that's kind of interesting. But very um, consistent because the Buddha when he talked about mindfulness he said when your view, when your virtue is purified and your view is straight then you establish mindfulness. So it's these are preceding qualities. Your virtue is purified, your view is straight, and the straight view, we call right view, there are consequences to where I place my attention. In this explanation he says, where you place your attention, topics, the attitudes, the basic, where are you coming from, if you linger on that, that has results because your mind takes on the mood, the quality of what you give attention to. It's, it's fashioned by that and it will start to formulate in those terms. And that will shape you. For good or for bad. So if we just broadly step out from that and just broadly consider that point when we look at what's the mainstream messages that we're given. Consumerism is important and valid. Get to sense pleasures in. That's the message. New colours, new fashions, new styles. Get them in. Really interesting. Wonderful, exciting, vivid, vibrant. Go to a vibrant city, vibrant nightlife. 
exciting, stimulating. (laughs) This is good. This is what we work hard for. (laughs) That's the message, isn't it? You go to a city, you see all kinds of things, shop windows, and everything's really presenting pleasure of the senses. Sounds kind of medieval, doesn't want to say it like that. But, you know, you look around and see things like clothes. And most people, where their intentions are, the clothes are designed to attract attention. To what? For why? (laughs) Yeah. And this goes on year after year. Different parts of the body get revealed, different parts of the body get coloured, dyed, twisted, so forth. You know, that shapes get presented. Why? Everybody knows what a body's about. In reality, what's going on? It's all, get one of these, get one of these, be one of these. If you be one of these attractive beings, then you will get all kinds of positive vibes. Uh-huh. So, um, how about rape? Is that a positive vibe? <laughs> Sexual assault, is that positive experience? <laughs> how about desperate sense of inadequacy because your body's the wrong shape? Is that a positive experience? Yeah. How about starving yourself because you're worried you're overweight? Is that a positive experience? Yeah. How about having to have cosmetic surgery? Is that a positive experience? How about trying to prop the body up when you're 75 years old and trying to make blood when you're 30 years old? Is that a positive experience? Worrying about your hair falling out? Is that positive? Having your moles cut off? Is that positive? <laughs> Not much positive, is it, really? You know, we're presenting this thing, we're presenting it. And you're thinking, this is just massive, destructive, delusion. And absorbed in that, presenting with that, where does one's intention go? It's often dazed. You can't really establish a firm intention when you get this flood. So you just kind of basically go along. And that's, um, that's mainstream, isn't it? And then we bounce off the political slogans, read the newspapers, you know, wars, violence, fear somebody. And then we get policy and propaganda, immigrants, nasty immigrants, you know. If we thought of them as desperate people in need of help, it wouldn't go down so well. But immigrants, nasty. There's the language framing up hostility. Framing up hostility towards other humans. And this is presented. It's constantly... Yeah. Mm. And of course, uh, yeah, we see the results of these. 
the fears, the tensions, the uh, cruelty towards other human beings coming from these basic foundational messages that are being presented. And it's not as if people start out with these firm intentions. It's not that people resolve. They just don't have much intention, apart from a sense of, well, I want to be okay, I want to feel good, I want a happy life. And then this other stuff gets gets planted. So you get seduced and mesmerized into this whole thing. And your intention is, okay, well, I guess that's what we do. You know, Saturday night, football, whatever it is, telly. Well, that's it. So your kind of mind is almost irrespective of one's wishes. Your mind is kind of shaped because often we get so dazzled and so dazed and so flooded that we lose the ability to actually determine what do I really want? Where's that going to be? Yeah. And is there an alternative? And this was, of course, the Bodhisattva's initial resolve. I don't know, but I'm going to have a try. I'm going to search externally. I'm going to search around, find teachers, find this, find that, move around. Internally, I'm going to search my own mind, my my obsessions, my worries, my fears, I'm going to search internally, my body, I'm going to search internally, externally, I'm going to search everywhere possible to find out, because this is crucial, and it's got to be a way, you know, otherwise, you know, what's the point? So very radical resolve, I think this is just something to resonate with, because my sense is, you know, he followed something I think we all have. You know, like desire. Okay, this is the desire realm. Creatures, chickens, worms, creatures want pleasure, don't want pain. Want life, don't want death. Me too. We're in the desire realm. Yeah. So in that desire realm, what are you going to do with your desire? Yeah. In the sense that you can actually shape it. And unlike other creatures, human beings can shape the desire into aspiration. Which is it's not about it's going to be something purely based upon qualities that they know, they sense, like love, morality, honesty, virtue, gratitude, generosity. Other creatures don't have the capacity that we do for that, but we can aspire, and we do aspire. And that's it. And you just tune into that that word and remind yourself of that. You're an aspiring being, a being who has the potential to aspire. What do you want to do with that? Don't let it be damped down. Don't let it be stifled under this sweltering mass of delusion. Use that aspiration to keep the spark of, let me keep inquiring, otherwise I'm more or less a dead person. <laughs>
I'm just a dead fish in the stream. Let me keep that going. And right now, here and now, whatever our lifestyle is, however we may think, oh yeah, today, and then tomorrow, and then it's Monday, and then July, I'm going on holiday, da-da-da-da-da, you know, that kind of conventional realm, where it can seem so ordinary, and just another day, and we've got domestic issues, and we've got our things we hope for, and we little things we're peeved about, or issues, and so just, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, don't lose touch with the possibility of aspiration, because this is why we call it rightly the noble quest, the Aryan quest, the noble quest. And, you know, you've got to start thinking, look, you could be happy for a while, you could be miserable for a while, you could be comfortable, you could be uncomfortable. Yep, same thing as a dog. But you could also be noble. You could have a noble life. Mm-hmm. And that's the Buddha, the fulfillment of nobility. And what does nobility mean? It means, I'm like, yeah, I know pleasure, I know pain. I know fear, I know grief. I know joy, I know sadness. I'm not shaken by this experience. I know it. I'm not dismissing it. I'm aware of it. I'm not shaken and grasped and held and limited to the experience. As it says, you know, the Tathagata dwells with unrestricted jitta, the jitta that's not restricted by mm, form, feeling, perception, volitions, consciousness, not restricted by aging, sickness, death, defilement, not restricted by suffering, lamentation and despair. I know all this and I'm above that through having fully known it. Now we all know those qualities, I'm sure. And do we remind ourselves, you know, just lifting off some of the details of our life to these fundamental currents that swim through it that one could aspire to know it, be aware of it, and move beyond that. That's the noble quest. That we are invited to participate for our own welfare and for the welfare of others, for the welfare of both, and for the release of the mind. Now it's not just me, for the wealth of others. If I am above my fear, if I have realized the way out of my anxiety, my irritation, my greed, it's going to be for your welfare. Because if I haven't, for sure that's going to start impacting you. (laughs) I'm still running my negative programs, my greed programs, my... Jealousy programs, the sure you're gonna get you're gonna get results of that. 
right? So let's have that sense of nobility, you know. And even it makes me a bit uncomfortable. In fact, because for the Buddhist extremely uncomfortable <laughs> when you look at his 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 CV, you know, <laughs> utter discomfort. Is it worth it? And the Buddha said, yes, this is worth it. This is worth it. The release and the joy and the wisdom. So, fulfilling that aspiration, remembering we can. And you take it down to just the kind of granular level of, okay, these very fundamental traits this sutta where he talks about this this way of he presents his awakening nikamma so he starts with nikamma or, or moving out of the grasp of sensuality yeah. and again we don't necessarily know we're in that grasp until we start to things get uncomfortable then we hey where's my where's my where's my pleasure where's my sugar Hey, <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> so in monastic life, of course, you have a, you have limitations on these allowances. And maybe the chocolate runs out. There's my chocolate there. <laughs> Go and get the anagarica. Hey, hey, Joe, get some chocolate. <laughs> so yeah. So what's it like when the when the, those run out? You know? um, yeah. So yeah, just sensing the the, the, the the these aren't necessarily flaring up, but the potentials are there. Yeah. And so we think, what was the, the bodhisattva sitting there with mind, with with sensuality, cruelty, and and brutality? What, you know? doesn't sound very spiritual to me. I don't think he was thinking, you know, mulling over fantasies of sexuality or something like that, but actually just recognising, hey, there's a hot wire here. There's a tendency for that. And if I really work, if I set my mind on it, it will start to bring up these fantasy visions and images and potentials. Recognising the roots of that. And then it says, then what if I go to Nekama or outside of that? And this is interesting because, of course, one of the um, things he'd already done was this extreme asceticism. That is not, that's not it. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about uh, having an idea of hating the senses, which is an idea, but actually just where is it the heart does not pick up and tune into sense pleasure. And then this is described as the uh, niramisa. So he says you can have sense pleasure, which is called samisa, conjoined with sensuality, or you can have niramisa, not conjoined with sensuality. So he said, I found that. So moving out of that to a place where sense pleasure doesn't take hold. 
Where's that? Well, he's a meditator, right? So he's sitting there, absorbing into a quality, say, of contentment. Now, contentment is definitely an experience. It's not a sound, it's not a sight, it's not a taste. It's a heart quality, right? That's one example of it. You could also say he, perhaps, you know, but you could say he also dwelt upon the sense of self-respect or virtue, where you feel contented with yourself, you feel upright. Could be it's just sensing of breathing and feeling this is extremely strong, vital, no sense appetites, it just happens, I don't have to reach out for it. Could be any of these, or all of them. And this is sort of the quality called jhana, where these qualities of heart are really felt as energies moving within the body that give rise to a whole field and dimension and domain of agreeable feeling that's not associated with sense contact. So that's that's one way of interpreting it. Could be wrong, but that seems to me that gives you some... Since it's not about asceticism, he'd already said that's a waste of time. But finding another place where, hey, this is agreeable. And in this particular condition, because there's no greed, there's no lust, there's no passion, yeah, then people, you know, I'm not going to be grabbing anything. So that's for other people's welfare too. In fact, my, my sense appetites go all the way down. Yeah. I don't need it. So we think like that, that gives you definitely something to work on. It's not so remote. It takes some practice to find we all have hearts. We will understand qualities such as aspiration, self-respect, loving kindness. We all know those. What do they feel like? Not just as ideas, but as felt experiences. When you feel warm towards other people, it's a gentle way. Tuning into that. Picking it up. Making much of it. So this is the kind of movement I'm suggesting. Now these other um, qualities called, um, you know, um, non vyapada and non vihingsa they're, they're glossed as compassion and kindness I'm not certain I've got the sequence right which is a good way of looking at it but it doesn't actually say that it doesn't say cultivated goodwill or kindness or compassion it says I cultivated non-violence I contemplate I cultivated non-cruelty so in other words, understanding those energies, those intuitions, those senses that give rise to cruel behaviour, I stepped out of it to somewhere else. Now if we look at these experiences, cruelty, one of the fundamental um, bases of cruelty is when we lose empathy with another being, okay? and this is very common, 
you know, so you say, because you label somebody. Ah, he's a Jew. He's a Nazi. He's a commie. He's a capitalist. Forget about being a human being. He's one of those. Empathy gone, then we can be insulting, cruel, dismissive. We stereotype people into particular forms that we then lose our sense of just like me. She doesn't want pain. Just like me, he gets irritated. Just like me, you know, we lose that sense. He's just dead one of those. So these people on boats, you can't run across the English Channel. If you want to get on an English Channel on a dinghy, it's not a pleasure trip. You're liable to die. You're doing it because you're utterly desperate. You've been bombed out of your town. Your your family's shot. You're on the run. You're starving. You're not doing it for fun. So, but oh, nasty people trying to invade our country. Right now, we could be cruel to them. Rather than desperate people need our help, we would be kind to them. Yeah, unwanted people, probably dirty, unwashed, lazy, don't speak our language. We don't want them. (laughs) Right. So, forget the sense of just like me. You know. What would I be like if I was in that situation? What would I be like if, you know, I lived in Syria or Afghanistan or Libya or some of these terrible places where people are livelihood is shot to pieces and got a kid? You know? What would I feel like? Forget that. And and he says, in this country, the cruelty's got a coolness to it. I'm sorry you haven't filled in the form. You didn't consult the website. What website? You know, we were walking around with internet access in a refugee camp. <laughs> so he gets this coolness to cruelty. You know, you get the classic torture scene, don't you? You know, where the torture is just, well, we need to find out some information from you and please cooperate. Just stone-faced, unresponsive, non-empathic. And then cruelty can begin. Once we've done that, then the cruelty can start. So just when we recognise this possibility, I'm not saying we're at that level, but just how we can so easily stereotype another into, oh, he's a bit of a nutter. Oh, she's weird. Oh, you know? Very easy to do, rather than deliberate reframing, or just like me. I too will be I could be you know I could be 85 years old and not know what's going on I'm not some stupid old idiot (laughs) I too will be you know so that sense in which we recognise that that loss of empathy is for other people's harm and what does it do to ourselves when we close the heart in that way, can this really be conducive to our welfare? If these kind of habits are going on, 
if we're calling each other names. If we're saying, you know, ah, Muslims, Christians, Mahayana, can we, even that, can this really be for anybody's welfare? You know, so you just start to look into this and recognize that that boundary is the boundary of myself, my limited, constricted self. I aspire to get past that through beginning to remove that boundary. Even if it makes me feel nervous, uncomfortable, disoriented, fearful of being overwhelmed or, you know, because I want to live a noble life. Even if it costs me. Harming, brutality. And of course these two really go together. The non-harming, the cherishing of life. All creatures living. None of them want pain. None of them want death. And we look at the earth, this is the realm of death. Not just people are just dying, old age, the amount of killing. The amount of killing. Absolutely normal, unstopped, never stops for a day. The killing never stops. So the grief never stops, the loss never stops, the resentment never stops, the fear never stops, and the lashback and the fighting never stops. Because the harming is seen as an easy way to abolish that which I find distasteful, uncomfortable, getting in my way, unpleasant, Fearful, that's the easy way out. Just get rid of it. And if you look at the human towards each other, we are the we are the greatest killers the world planet has ever known. And we do it not for food. We just do it for fun sometimes. No other creature does that. No other creature takes comes and shoots birds out of the sky to the point which we eliminate entire species of billions of creatures through just fun. <coughs> Nothing else does that. Wow, we have this in our genes. You know? And where does it begin? I don't think we're necessarily born with a real wish to harm others. But certainly this message gets printed as being kind of okay. So it's okay to kill animals. So, well, well, let's start with little ones like flies. Yeah, that's definitely okay. <laughs> yeah, bugs, they're okay. Yeah. Creatures that eat my lettuce, spray them, kill them. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, maybe a chicken, yeah, that's okay too. Ah, oh, well, pigs, yeah, they're okay. Sheep, yeah, that's okay. Beef, yeah, that's okay. 
<laughs> Got to eat something. You know, so you get like a scenario of like over a hundred billion animals who didn't want to die, didn't need to die, killed every year. Land animals, not even fish. To the point when there's the blood never ceases running. And that that uh, right the right to kill is sacred. Right? You know? And of course it's presented in certain ways, you know, like the American Constitution, the right to bear arms means the right to kill. Of course, for defence. And yet you look at the, the stories, it's no longer news, is it? No longer news, you know, guy walks into some school, shoots down 25 kids. Oh, no, that was the same as last week, wasn't it? Don't actually see the connection, <laughs> the right to kill, the right to bear arms, you know, and therefore, what's going to happen? Somebody, the wires, the fire lights, something, the wires light up, you kill. Yeah. And the, you know, so the potency of that, of that aspect of human nature. How do we overcome that? Willing to be with the unpleasant is the beginning of it. Willing to be with that which I don't like. Willing to give up a bit of mine. So I'm willing to give up a bit of my stuff. My convenience. Willing to share with creatures I don't like very much. At least to not kill them. Willing to not have everything exactly the way I want it. That's where you begin to feel the irritation of having to, the frustration, and the why do I have to? Now it's getting, you know, you begin to recognize that little niggly voice. See, that's where it begins. That's where the fly swatting begins. That's where the pigeon hunt begins. That's where the chicken slaughter begins. That's where the get rid of those human beings begins. Begins in that sense of the fear, the antipathy, and the, the this flooding of this projection of negativity onto other creatures to the right to the point which we will actually destroy them. Their life is not valid. Mm-hmm. For my welfare? Nope. Seems to be because this will defend me and make me safe and make me secure and make me give me a nice place to live. I don't have to bother with nasty creatures and stupid people. Well, does it work? No. We've been doing this for thousands of years. Has it created everything secure and comfortable? No. Just created a huge arms industry. <laughs> you know, and, and that focus on let's keep our territory together, let's get mine, you know, focus on that. And for other people's welfare, for our welfare, we're living in fear, 
and hostility and paranoia and you know scapegoating others and dismissing the lives of, of animals, other creatures and just you know and it's astonishing really. And so when you cultivate, you begin to just recognize the sense of not taking another creature's life as a worse. Just begin with that. And you start to review things like, you know, even what food you eat. You actually trace it back. Say, that, very nice, very nicely prepared veal cutlet. Nice shot, nice really want to give somebody a nice present okay but where do you think it came from and how did you think that creature felt about that did you know the, the conditions they lived in they were brought up um, so they weren't allowed to move much because it would make their, 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 their meat too tough so they weren't allowed to walk around because it would make their meat tough and it would be unpalatable so they were kept they were kept in cages, so they wouldn't move around too much. And they had horns calves. When they got upset, they didn't attack each other. You know? And then we injected them with, with growth hormones. And then we took away from their young ones and killed them. I don't want to be part of that, really. So we really start to cultivate this, and clearly we all have our own capacities. But maybe we, like the Buddha doesn't actually state what you have to do or not. He says, inquire and aspire and keep turning things over. Just see how far you can spread these qualities of non violence, non cruelty. Nonsense, you know. just see how far you can spread them because I'll tell you, they feel good. This isn't just about being righteous, they feel good and they will liberate your mind from the corruption of ignorance, the corruption of selfhood, the corruption of narcissism. They'll free your mind from that, you'll feel much more open, bright, and this is the Aryan path, noble path. So it gives us something quite specific and uh, a sense of both inquiry, firm intention, keeping the intention there. Doesn't matter, every day you lose it, you pick it up again. Every day is Buddha's birthday. Every day is Buddha's awakening day. He didn't say, I only get awakened on a Thursday. You know, I imagine this process took a bit of time, so every day we set it up again. Lose it, set it up again. Yeah? And then aspire. Don't just coast. Don't get lost too much in the domestic details of, well, she said this, and I never get that, and they don't listen to me, and da da da. Don't, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, not very nice, is it? Not very comfortable. Look, don't get lost in that. You know, see if you can just, because you're not going to find an answer 
to your your aspiration will not be finalized at that level of just domestic stuff. It's only going to be realized in the purity, integrity, and strength of your own heart. Don't let other people's stuff disturb that. I know it's difficult, but really, if you bring up this sense of compassion, goodwill, you know, acceptance, self-respect, you've got a place to go to that other people and things don't reach. You've got a place to where the world doesn't go. You've got a place to go to. Go there. And rise. Let it rise. It's going to pick you up. Aspiration. Intention. Inquiry. Examine. And then establish sati, mindfulness. Absorb into those qualities till they become firm for you. This will definitely be for your welfare and for the welfare of others and lead to release, Nibbana. And this is uh, one way of framing the Buddha's awakening in these terms. I hope it's of some relevance to you uh, this evening and uh, Let's continue our practice.